Today we continue our series seven, and we've been looking in the second chapter and going to look next week in the third chapter of the book of Revelation at Jesus' letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. Each letter ends with something like this, whoever has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And not only have we been looking at these actual churches and these actual letters that were written for actual situation, but we've been taking Jesus up on his offer to let us hear and to let us look in and see what it is that we can take from these letters and apply them to our lives. We've looked at three churches so far. The first week we looked at the church in Ephesus, then we looked at the church in Smyrna, and then we looked at the church last week in Pergamum. And if you missed any of those, I would invite you to go back and listen to them on our website or our mobile app. As we get farther into this series, it's interesting, we'll kind of kind of compare uh, some things about some of the churches. And so if you are caught up, it will help you in your understanding of those things. Today we look at the church at Thyatira, the city of Thyatira, is the smallest city among the cities that have the churches that Jesus writes to. Now, it's the smallest city, but it receives the longest letter. The name Thyatira means unceasing sacrifice. And it's very well named because really what Thyatira was, it was a military buffer city. It was located in a valley about 40 miles from the capital city of Pergamum. Thyatira had no natural defenses at all, and every invading army, every army that invaded Asia Minor came sweeping down the valley where Thyatira was, and they had to get through Thyatira before they could get to Pergamum. Now, the garrison at Thyatira had one assignment. It was not to win the battle, but it was to hold off the invading army just long enough for the church at Pergamum or the city of Pergamum, rather, to prepare for the invasion. The city of Thyatira's sole purpose was to be a buffer, to hold off the army as long as it could so that the city of Pergamum could prepare for the battle. And as you can imagine, over the years, Thyatira was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt many, many, many times. You might call Thyatira a blue-collar town, it had a great woolen industry. They also manufactured a purple dye, which came from a shellfish. And it was a very much sought-after commodity by royalty. Also in Thyatira, they were known for their trade guilds. And the trade guild was basically an ancient form of what we know today as a union. And workers from various industries came together in these guilds. And they not only set prices, but they also guaranteed work. And two things that are going to be important for our understanding and as we look at this church today, two things. One is that if you did not join a guild, then basically you would not have a job and you wouldn't be able to support your family. But also, the trade guilds were involved in a lot of immoral practices as it related to worship. So for the Christian, it was a challenge to be a part of a trade guild when they were off worshiping other gods. And it was a very, very, very difficult situation for them. So just keep that in mind as we go through this letter today. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished 
bronze. Jesus presents himself in three ways. He says that he's the one who saves. He is the son of God. He presents himself in all his deity. He is the only savior and he is the only one worthy of being worshipped. And then he says he's the one who sees. His eyes are like blazing fire. He's the one who sees everything and his eyes can penetrate even the heart and the mind of each individual. And then he's the sovereign one. It says his feet are burnished, which means polished, bright, or smooth bronze. And bronze in scripture is always symbolic of judgment. Jesus is the one who is able to judge, but Jesus is the one who comes to judge. And we'll see how that works in a little bit later as well. In the other churches, we find that Jesus, in his opening to them, has some words maybe of comfort or, or some words to, to, to maybe build them up. But when Jesus comes to the church at Thyatira, uh, he has authority in mind, and he has his judgment attire on. And Jesus presents himself to the church at Thyatira in a very different way than he's presented himself to the other churches. But for our understanding today, not only will these three things play an important part in looking at the church in Thyatira, but these things are also very true for us today. That Jesus is still the Savior. Jesus is still the one who is worthy of worship. Jesus is still the one who sees not just the works on the outside, but Jesus is the one who can see into our hearts and into our minds. He is the one who can see our motives. And also... He's not only the one who has the authority to judge, but as Scripture tells us, he is the one who will come to judge. So all those things are the same and have not changed since the time of the writing of the letter to Thyatira. So, as the one who sees, here's what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira. In verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So what are the good things that the church at Thyatira is doing? Well, they're an active church. They're very busy. They're active and they're working in their own fellowship, but also they're active and they're working in their own community. There's a, a word that he uses here. He talks about he knows their service. One of the second or third meanings of, of the word service actually means those who kick up dust. So the idea is that they were really busy. They were moving from service project to service project. They were kicking up a lot of dust in this church in Thyatira as they went about their work. And he also says that they persevered in the face of opposition. But beyond that, Jesus says you're, you're doing it with the right motives. You are motivated by your love and by your faith which is just the opposite, if you remember, from the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, when we, we looked at it, we found that they had lost the love that they had at first. Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, he says, I know about your love and how these deeds that are motivated by that love are more than they were at first. They're growing in that sense. They're busy, they're loving, they're faithful, they're persevering. They're a service-oriented church, and they're doing it all with the right motives, and Jesus commends them for doing that. I was reminded this past week at our first church council meeting with the new council uh, for the year. We, we went around the room, and we talked about some of the things that people were excited about, that they see God doing in our fellowship. 
And we heard stories about how the number of life groups has increased and the number of people who are actually participating in life groups has increased. People are serious about growing in their faith. We witnessed baptisms last week where people are are coming to know Christ and not only just coming to know him, but growing in that relationship. We see how God is, is working and transforming lives through our recovery ministry. We see how people are reaching out into the community and making a difference in our community with the love of Christ. Uh, We've celebrated the effective use of of technology and more effective means uh, of communicating the gospel. And we talked about uh, the way we work with automated giving and all of those kinds of things that God has allowed us to do. We talked about a renewed sense of community and a renewed sense of worship and a renewed sense of care that that seems to be a part of of our fellowship. And we celebrated all of those things. And all of those things are motivated by love for Christ and motivated by love for each other. And it's exciting when we think about the things that are going on. But back to the church at Thyatira, when when you read where Jesus commends them for all these things that they're doing. And when he tells them you're doing it for the right motives, you would think, well, he can't have anything bad to say to this church at Thyatira. But here's what he says in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The problem in the church at Thyatira is that woman. And not only is it that woman, but the church itself is tolerating that woman. Now, before you get mad at me for preaching about that woman on Mother's Day, purely accidental, it just is the way it fell, I promise you, it was not... It was not planned. But secondly, I also want to say that this in no way, shape, or form is to be taken as an indication that women have no place in ministry in the church. Women play an important part in the ministry of the church. And the fact that this person here happens to be a woman in no way is any indication that women are not an important part of the ministry of the church. So who is that woman? Well, evidently, she was a dominant leader. Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, that wasn't her real name because if you know about Jezebel in the Old Testament, you know that no self-respecting person would have named their child Jezebel. She's rather named according to her character. Jesus often did that in the gospel. For instance, Simon, he gave a new name. He called him Peter, which means the rock, and it was an indication of the role that he would play in the building of the church. But Jesus chooses... When he's talking to the church at Thyatira, this individual woman, he chooses to call her Jezebel after the most wicked woman in the Old Testament. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab of Israel, and she was particularly noted for the worship of the god Baal. And not only the worship of the god Baal, but making him popular in Israel. Baal was a fertility god, and his worship... uh, was immoral, Uh, it was lewd, it was sexual. Uh, There were temple prostitutes, both male and female, associated with the worship of Baal. And it was Jezebel who spread this degrading worship throughout all Israel and who influenced a lot of people to the point where it became a very popular religion in Israel in that day. And if you want to read all of Jezebel's story, you can read it in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. 
But Jezebel in Thyatira called herself a prophetess. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. There are women prophets in Scripture. But the problem with Jezebel was that she was a false prophet. She had named herself a prophet, and she was a false one to boot. So what was Jezebel teaching? Well, she taught that it was all right for Christians to indulge in all these immoral and lewd sexual activities. She taught that it was okay to be involved in idolatry. Here's kind of a link that I talked about earlier to the trade guilds. Remember I said that, that you had to belong to a guild, but if you belong to a guild, they practiced all these immoral, religious, quote, activities. The trade guilds, for instance, were run mostly by the pagans. And if the Christian wanted to work, you had to be a part of these trade guilds. But this put the Christian in an awfully difficult situation. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you know that you are called to live a certain way. But you also know that you have to feed your family. So the dilemma for them was, what do we choose? Do we have to choose between feeding our family Or do we have to choose between God? I mean, it's a difficult thing for them. Maybe you think it shouldn't have been, but it was. They had to choose. But Jezebel made it easy for them. Jezebel came along and said, hey, you don't have to choose. You can do both. You see, she said, you can be a believer But God understands if you go off and live an immoral life so you can make a living. She was teaching them that it was okay. That God somehow understood. Her idea was business is business. You can separate business from your worship of God. God understands because you have to do these things to feed your family, to make a living. And she taught them how to keep their jobs by compromising their faith, and what was happening, not only were people doing that, but the church was looking the other way. And, were, and they were allowing this stuff to happen. They were complicit by looking the other way. Which brings up a modern-day question, or two, or three. Do you think making a living supersedes your obligations to be faithful to your faith? Or are you compromising your faith in the workplace because you're afraid you'll lose your job if you don't? Do you practice one set of values at church, another set of values at home, and another set of values where you work? And then the other question is, does the church see you doing that and just kind of look the other way? Eh, That's their private life. We can't get involved in that kind of stuff. And worse, does the church actually teach it? I mean, does the church actually teach that, that it's okay to sacrifice your faith and your beliefs so you can go earn a living? It's dangerous. It's dangerous to think that way for a number of reasons. But the main one I can think of is dangerous because sin is never justified. Sin is never, ever justified. It is a sin to lie. 
If you have to lie where you work to keep your job, if your job requires you to lie, your sin is not justified because you're doing it to make a living. It's not. Sin is never justified. If you are called on where you work to cheat, if you have to cheat to keep your job, your cheating is not justified because it allows you to keep your job. Sin is never, ever, ever justified. And the other thing you're saying is this. You're saying you don't trust God. Because God's promise is, if you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And it shows itself over and over and over again, not just in Scripture, but in the lives of people we see all the time. People who make a stand for Christ. And Christ honors that stand that they make for him. But what we're saying is, if we're saying, look, I'm going to have to compromise my faith a little or a lot so I can keep my job and feed my family... When you say that, what you are saying is you're saying that God essentially is a liar. Because God said, look, be faithful to me and I'll take care of you. And we're saying, no, you won't. That's what it's about. We're saying we don't trust God. We don't trust God to tell us the truth. And we don't trust, trust God to take care of us. But God honors faithfulness. But God also deals with sin. And for us to think that we can live this kind of double life and get away with it, we're in for a surprise. Verse 21 says, speaking of Jezebel, Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Failure to repent brings disastrous consequences and death. And here's the deal. God, in his mercy, had given Jezebel, or whatever her name is, a chance to repent. He had given her chance after chance after chance after chance to change her ways. And she didn't. He had given people who followed her chance after chance after chance to change their way. And they didn't. And basically what he's saying here is that the sin has consequences. And even though God wanted them back into a relationship with him, even though God gave them more than one chance, essentially what happens is because they didn't repent, then they suffered the consequences for their sin. When he says children here, what he's probably talking about are those who, the spiritual children, those who followed their, her false teaching. But the idea that God is going to deal with sin, you can think you're getting away with it, but God eventually is going to deal with it. In one way or the other. But another thing that he's talking about here is he wants the church to deal with Jezebel. And he wants the church to quit looking the other way as it relates to what's going on. 
But sometimes what happens is we continue to look the other way. Uh, sometimes we're, we're, we fail to be diligent in really calling people to be accountable and, and calling people to live lives that are faithful to God, not just when they come in this building, but in the workplace, in every place that they are. So what happens? What are the results? What are the, the consequences that happen? What are the natural consequences that happen when the church is not diligent in confronting sins and when Christians live in this kind of double world where they think they can be Christians here and compromise their beliefs in the workplace? What happens? Well, for one thing, people get hurt. If you make your living in an industry that contributes significantly to poor health and death in other people. Is that right for the Christian? Is it okay for the Christian to profit by selling a product that in the end only hastens people's death? What about destroying families? Is it okay to profit from family destruction? I haven't really talked about this in a long time, but, but those of you who, who've known me for a long time know that, that I am a big, big opponent um, of, of the lottery, and I'll tell you why. You see, they'll tell you that the funds from the lottery or from gambling, let's just say gambling, that the funds, the proceeds from that, what do they do? They put your kid through school. Your kid gets the, the promised scholarship if, if the grades are there. You see, gambling helps put your kids through school. It, it helps veterans. Who's going to argue with that? It helps senior citizens. Who in the world is going to argue with that? But what happens is, we're out here doing all these wonderful things at the expense of destroyed families. We are benefiting from the destruction of someone else. And it's wrong. It's wrong. There, there's no way to justify that. There's a guy in, in Celebrate Recovery who told me one time that... He's a, a recover, recovering gambling addict. And that he's really doing well. But every week when he drives home from Celebrate Recovery, he passes six places where he could stop and gamble. He is tempted six times between here and his house, both ways, <laughs> to stop and go into those destructive behaviors. So my question is, there are a lot of Christians benefiting from the gambling industry. Is that right to benefit off someone else's destruction? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. We have Christians involved in, in cities and in communities and in places of, of leadership uh, around the country. And, and we look at what's going on in a lot of our, of our cities. And, and what happens is sometimes we see Christians who will compromise their beliefs maybe to cover an injustice 
Or we will have Christians who will compromise their beliefs and incite violence and unrest for personal gain. We see it all the time. Is that right? No, it's not. According to what God says, it's not. What about trust and leadership? If you're a boss and if you make a profit by mistreating your employees, is that right? No, it's not. It's not right at all. We wonder why our children grow up in a society and don't know right from wrong. It's because we haven't taught it to them. We have profited off of other people's misery and death to make a living. And we think it's perfectly fine because we've convinced ourselves it's doing great things. We have people who are opportunistic and they, they go in and, and they, they profit off of a, a situation. And then, you know, we have people that walk around and say, well, I wonder why my kids, I wonder why my kids just aren't getting it. Maybe it's because we're not living it. And we're teaching them a really, really bad precedent. And here's the other thing. The church tends to look the other way. Well, you know, I don't want to talk to John because John's got to make a living and John's got a good business there. You know, we, we don't want to mess with, with John. We don't want to mess with him and what he's doing. Well, if John's destroying people and lives, yeah, maybe we need to quit looking the other way. Maybe we need to talk to John. It's interesting. Jesus' first command to the church in Matthew. Jesus' first command to the church is in chapter 18. Now, in chapter 16, he talks about building his church, but the first command to the church is in Matthew chapter 18. And he gives this instruction. He says, look, he says, if your brother sins, then what you are to do is you are to go to him and gently correct him and try to show him the error of his ways. And if he repents... You've earned your brother back. Now, if he refuses, then you go back the next time and you take two or three people with you. And if he still won't change and repent, then you bring him before the church. And if he still won't do it, then Jesus says you treat him like a tax collector. They were the outcasts in the day. In other words, he's no longer a brother because he won't repent. Now, what is the goal there? Is the goal to run somebody off? No, it's not at all. The goal there is restoration. It's to bring someone who's strayed back into the fold. Someone who's not living the life that Christ wants him to live. It's, it's us helping to bring them back. That's the goal. That's the goal of all of this. Someone said, well, pastor, it looks like maybe you have a, your work cut out for you. Uh, Jesus doesn't say anything about pastor. He doesn't. What, what Jesus says is, look, if your brother 
if you see something, then you go. If you have a brother or sister in Christ that you are concerned about and about the way they're living their life, don't call me. You go. Now, there's a place for the church and other people to get involved down the road. But don't call me and tell me I need to go talk to somebody. You go. That's what Jesus says. But before you go, let me warn you. Pray, pray, and pray. Go with the right spirit. Go speaking the words that God gives you, not your own words. And it's all out of love. And it's all about restoration. In verse 24, he says, Now I say to the rest of you, See, everybody wasn't in trouble. I say to the rest of you in, in Thyatira, So you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. God says, look, you're dealing with enough. I'm not going to put any more on you, those of you who are being faithful, those of you who are walking in love, those of you who are doing the things that I tell you to do. You know, Ephesus had sound doctrine, but they lost their first love. Thyatira had the love, but they had lost their sound doctrine. And both extremes exist in the church today. Because you have narrow-minded perfectionists who are judgmental, who are loveless, who are ruthless, and who are offensive. And they use their faith to justify that. And then you have people who are tolerant and have no regard for anything holy or any standards at all in life. And both extremes are dangerous. Because God's desire is holiness and love. And it's so easy for us to get on this judgmental kick and get out there and be the modern day Pharisee. Plus, it's also easy for us just to turn the other way and look and say, eh, that's their business. Somewhere in the middle is what God wants you to do. And it's difficult to find that middle. And it's not just difficult for me. It's difficult for everyone. John Piper, who's somebody, if you've ever listened to any of his stuff, man, he's a, he's a thinker. But here's what, here's what John Piper said. He said, for me, it's not simple. It takes tremendous spiritual insight to know when to be tough in vigilance and when to be tender in tolerance. In the one direction lurks the Ephesian indictment. You've left your first love. In the other direction lurks the other indictment. You tolerate adultery. Jesus clearly does not want us to choose between these two but to avoid them both. Love and vigilance, tough and tender, truth and grace. This is our calling and it's not easy. Verse 26, Jesus says to the church, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one who will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
All churches deal with issues. Every church. These churches. The Ephesian church, they didn't tolerate false doctrine, but they'd lost their love. The Thyatiran church, they loved, their love had grown stronger, uh, but they tolerated false doctrine. The church at Pergamum, where we looked last week, they were flirting with the idea of marrying adultery and immorality. Well, the church at Thyatira, they were celebrating anniversaries. That's how bad it had gotten there. Every church is different. Every church is different. But as believers, we are called to be faithful regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. There's a wonderful contrast Jesus makes here. Jesus, in chapter 22, later on in, in Revelation, uh, is called the bright and morning star. And here in verse 28 of, of chapter 2, there's the suggestion that the people who are victorious are so closely identified with Christ that, that Christ actually belongs to them. And there's also the allusion to Satan who wanted it all and who tried to tempt Christ and, and who said, if you'll do this, I'll give you this. If you'll do this, I'll give you this. Because he wanted it all. Satan wanted it all. And here's the contrast. For those who follow Satan, for those who think they can, can live in, in two different worlds, for those, he says this. He, he talks about the, the depths of, of, of Satan and the idea that the compromising people in Thyatira had fallen into that, which leads to death and darkness. But for the ones who are victorious... Here's the contrast. For those who stay faithful, he will give them what Satan and his followers wanted but could never have. And that's the morning star. So I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you to be faithful to what God has called you to do, uh, to be bold, but please be loving. Please be loving. Don't do anything out of any other motivation but love. Be faithful to God who is faithful to you. Let's pray.